I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 52 for March. I'm Duncan, and I wouldn't like to thank the Academy for yet again not giving Roger Deakins an Oscar. Poor Roger Deakins, eh? Ah, how unlucky. Yeah. Uh, I'm Simon. Hey, and look, if you need it, I can get you a toe by three o'clock this afternoon <laughs> with nail polish. <laughs> nice. So, Simon, what have you been watching? Okay, look, for lots of reasons, this was a pretty crazy month. So, I didn't get a heck of a lot watched, but I did see The Gift, written and directed and starring Joel Edgerton, the talented bastard, as the creepy old school friend who shows up on Jason Bateman and his wife's doorstep and keeps showing up. Uh, Edgerton comes across on the right side of socially awkward. It's hard to tell if he's a bad guy or just an odd guy for a lot of the film. Certainly it's easy to see why Rebecca Hall, as Bateman's wife, shows him kindness. Uh, well, Bateman makes a meal out of his role of, well, kind of a bullying jerk, you know? Mm-hmm. I love this film quite a bit, mainly for its refusal to be the kind of straw dog as one man defends his home film that I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the fact that it doesn't go this unexpected route because of some narrative twists and, or anything, but through being just true to very well-drawn characters. Okay. Yeah, it was really great. Um, you know, I'm not. I haven't seen Bateman in a lot of films, and they've all been comedies. Yeah. Uh, but if I met him on the street now, I'd think, oh, I don't like you, man. <laughs> uh, whatever comedy he's done has kind of been replaced in my mind by his character in this film. Right. Yeah. And he's kind of a he's kind of a bully. Yeah. Which is hard to imagine, but he is. Yeah, I know. I can imagine that. I guess because he's kind of got that arrogance tied into him as yeah. well. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. 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 He's got that going on. Mm. Um, and I like this film a lot. I like Joel Edgerton. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, wrote, directed, stars, oh. uh, well, co-stars. Yeah, yeah. He mm-hmm. shot all his material apparently right at the beginning, so he could concentrate on. Yeah, as you would, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Stone Tape, which was an odd little spooky gem from screenwriter Nigel Keane, the mastermind behind the the Quatermass films of the fifties, and much later Hammer Films' The Woman in Black, made for television and shot on a soundstage with actors who can't say a line of dialogue if they can instead just like shout it hysterically. <laughs> Uh, the Stone Tape actually benefits from its cheap video format and amateurish effects. They actually give it a real uh, creepy tone, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Keen's story of timeless hauntings that make this such a good watch. Right. Um, I've heard really great things about it, mm-hmm. and it's on YouTube. Okay. You can watch the whole thing. It's one of those. Excellent. Sorry, so when was this released? Uh, 72. 72, okay. 72 uh, for television, so it was made for television. Right. Um, and yeah, yeah, acting is just like, everyone shouts things, you know. <laughs> Part western, part horror film, part comedy, and all awesome, Bone Tomahawk uh, was a real treat. Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, and Richard Jenkins are on the trail of a cannibal clan who have kidnapped Wilson's wife. Uh, a trail that meanders off into delightful dialogue scenes, and eventually a full-blooded, gruesome finale. Uh, quite slow-moving, I know a lot of people found it too slow, uh, but just so much fun and performed with gusto by all four leads. You mm-hmm. know? Um, I haven't seen a lot, you know, Matthew Fox, I mean... He's really good in this, and he's not an, an actor, you know, you look out for, I guess. Yeah. You know, the last thing I think I saw him in was just uh, almost cut out of Will Will Z, practically. Because, <laughs> you know, he had a much larger role in Will Will Z. Okay. He was like the villain of the piece, and then um, okay. they got rid of that whole subplot, and he became right. this guy who helped um, Brad Pitt's wife onto a helicopter. Right. Poor, poor dude. So he got shroded. Yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He's in it, but that's almost worse, I think, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, no, Bone Tom Hall, really good. And look, lastly, long-time listeners of this podcast have probably heard me use the term Jillian, uh, a word I used to describe the act of hitting the stop button on a movie early on when you realise such a piece of rancid garbage that to keep watching would only make you more irate than you currently are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word, of course, comes from the 2003 mega-turkey Jilly, starring uh, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, a film I hated really hard, hard out hated. Well, this month, I Jillied another film. Wow. I Jillied I Frankenstein. Ah, oh, good work. Yeah. Look, because I only watched 10 minutes of I Frankenstein, that's all I'm going to review. Uh, and frankly, I, actually, I think that seems enough. So I Frankenstein opens with a rapid recap of the Frankenstein story because apparently Mary Shelley's timeless tale is kind of amateur stuff when compared with the story of the brooding and sexy six-packed monster called Adam 
caught in the middle of a battle between demons and gargoyles who, look, unsurprisingly, are also really sexy. <laughs> like, they start off as bone, uh, uh, stone gargoyles, you know? Yeah. But when they land, they turn into, like, sexy people. Yeah. Who do, like, martial arts moves and stuff. Uh, poor Miranda Otto uh, shows up as, like, the queen of the gargoyles, I think, and gets to dump, like, this river of ug- ugly exposition on us while her gargoyle number two played kind of ominous- ominously for bad film um, uh, people who watch out for bad films by Jai Courtney, watches on. Uh, we then leap forward centuries for some reason. I, I, I have no idea why. I have no idea what he's really been doing, uh, Adam, over those centuries. But apparently he's now hunting demons with a single-minded drive that's never actually explained. Mm. And then Bill Nighy showed up, and that's kind of where I quit it. Right. Uh, driven off by muddy cinematography, a moronic storyline, most damning, considering it was the only thing that I Frankenstein possibly had to offer, Really crummy CGI. Uh, this, this looks like a horrid film. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if you've tried or... No, I haven't tried. Uh, interestingly, I think we're playing this on the uh, channel I work for. At <laughs> TV. I think we're playing it on our... I our... hope you get to make the promo. Uh, yeah, I don't think I am, unfortunately. It just seems like missing the mark, though, you know? Like, you should be the target audience for this, right? Like, oh, like Frankenstein. Yeah, I don't think I'm the audience they actually want to attract. Mm. But who are they going to attract with, you know, like a sexy version of Frankenstein. It seems just, just missing everyone. Oh, I think they want to attract the audience who watch Underworld. I guess so, yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I, like, sorry, just, you know, like Dracula. Yeah. You kind of get, there's tenants in that that suggest itself to being updated or made sexy or made, you know, uh, seductive. Mm. As we know from vampires. But Frankenstein doesn't really reek of that. Like no. It's quite the opposite. It's, it it's does seem to be the curse of Frankenstein. That <laughs> he's not well suited being um, updated. Yeah, he's not Aaron Eckhart. He's not, you know, yeah. I believe in Harvey Dent. Like, he's not that guy. So. Yeah. I feel sorry for Mary Shelley. It was only a couple of months ago I was talking about uh, a version of uh, Frankenstein with Radcliffe where the director was, like, panning her book and just saying, ah, forget about the book's terrible. And and here's a film that also seems to think the book's terrible because it just wants to add gargoyles and demons. (laughs) The book's not bad, folks. Yeah. It's really not. Better than the opening 10 minutes of I, Frankenstein. Uh, Most things are. (laughs) Um, Yeah, anyway, so that was my month in film. How about you, Duncan? Uh, Well, kind of picking up almost where you left off there. Bonfire of the Vanities. Oh, cool. Yeah, a famous mess of a film. Uh, miscasting all over the place. Totally. But none more so than Bruce Willis as an alcoholic journalist who gets a reprieve when stumbling onto the truth of Tom Hanks's yuppies hit and run on a poor black man. I think this is a case of poor timing. It made me realise that the age of biting mainstream satires seemed to take a break while, like, Paddy Chayefsky had a rest after his great 70s work and then kind of roared back into life in the last decade or so around the time of Wag the Dog. They sort of... Oh, that's right. Yeah, political satires. Mm. Yeah, I remember those. You know, social commentary. Yeah. 1991, maybe not such a great time for that. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hanks is pretty badly cast, too. Hey, yeah, and, and look, I've never read the highly regarded source material, but I can imagine the changes are for the worse. And the biggest is, like, making Hanks's character likable. They go out of the way to kind of make him likable. You yeah. can tell that. Yeah. You're like, this is supposed to be an unlikable guy. Yeah. What are you doing? You're trying to send up the yuppiedom of the 80s, but then you try so desperately to make Tom Hanks likable. Yeah, it's, it's a weird decision. I haven't read the source material either, but I have read uh, Devil's Candy, the, yeah. the, the, uh, the novel-length book detailing everything that went wrong on this production. Yeah, and what I love about that is De Palma apparently came out and said, Hey, it's pretty pretty much 100% accurate. Yeah. Which I like. Yeah, he me too. He actually came out and just said, yeah. Total respect for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, but it's also his de- decision to kind of just direct everyone as if they're in a pantomime. Yeah. Oh, that's just odd. I mean, Kim Cattrall is like, she's on Valium the whole time, her character and everyone else. Is, uh, it, it's, it's maddening. But I will say, if Murray Abraham is worth watching as like this greedy mayor delivering dialogue in a way Amanda Iannucci would be proud of. I really liked him in it, and he had some great dialogue. And um, but oh, what a what a mess of a film. Yeah. And it gets to the end, and you're like, really, is that it? Like that's what you've got to say? It feels like it's going to be this uh, great American movie, basically. It, that's what its pretensions are. But it doesn't even try and get there. It's odd. Uh, three Iron. I saw, which is a near dialogue-free Korean film about a man who insinuates himself into people's lives without their knowledge. 
it's happy to communicate its spirit and central characters in visual terms, and dialogue belongs to the corrupt, clueless, and bored. Really original and engaging film. It's got this great way that he basically breaks and enters into people's houses, and the way he does it is he goes around to all these apartments, and he puts a, uh, a takeaway flyer on their door, and then he comes back a day later, and if it's still there, then he lets himself in. Right. So that was something to learn. I might want to make yeah, sure I take my rubbish. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> uh, Simon Lambert recommendation time, and it was The Guest. Oh, cool. Yeah, Dan Stevens is great fun, and just a bonkers movie, I thought, that starts particularly strongly as a tightly called thriller and then blossoms into really an entirely different genre. But he's really good. He is really good. Yeah. Um, it all goes a little bit silly towards the end. I kind of was, uh, you know, I was kind of laughing with it, I guess, but I thought the beginning was really like, you just don't know mm. what's going on and he plays it really well. Yeah, I, I agree. It does go a bit bonkers and I kind of like that because it felt like something you would have rented on VHS and been perfectly happy with. Yeah, that's uh, right. But you're right. He's great. Um, yeah. Funny too. Yeah, yeah, funny, but just real star making for him, I think. You know, I if I so. was a casting director, I'd be looking at that going, there we go. That guy. And uh, helping with its rise to the top of the R-rated box office record, I saw Deadpool at the movies. Mm -hmm. uh, the only titles are inspired, and I like the way it structured the superhero origin story, uh, even if it was at risk of becoming a feature-length stand-up act. Um, but good on Reynolds for finally getting the mega hit he's been chasing, and on his terms, no less, he's been chasing this for a decade, um, trying to get this made. Oscar Roundup with Spotlight, the best investigative journalism on the big screen since all the presidents, men. Uh, Keaton, McAdams, and Schreiber, Everyone's on good form, but it is Ruffalo, once again, who mm. proves he is the most empathetic and likable actor on screen at present. He's just great in that film. Yeah. Uh, and then also I saw Bridge of Spies. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. A film set in a different era and kind of almost made for a different era, really. Mm. Uh, made for a very particular audience. It's very slow moving. Mm -hmm. There are no striking Spielbergian moments either, but there is an entertaining Hanks performance and an enigmatic one from Mark Rylance, who won the Oscar, Although, to be honest, a little bit head-scratching as to how he just, like, slam-dunked his way to Academy Awards glory. Yeah. You watch it and you go, you're kind of waiting for some great twist or great scene right. or great soliloquy or something. And you're like, yeah. oh. Right. Yeah. It struck me as the, one of the bigger upsets of the night. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think it is. I think it is one of those ones where you're like, you know, he's good in it. Mm. But you wouldn't say that's Oscar winning. Yeah. I saw The Last Gangster. Edward G. Robertson absolutely killing it uh, on screen as a young, smart, and ruthless character. You can see why he would be an inspiration for Pesci and De Niro. Uh, Robinson's character is surprisingly complex and layered for a 1930s depiction of a gangster and is also notable for a curiously straight secondary role for a young Jimmy Stewart just a year before he become like a huge star in his oh, wonderful wow. life. And he plays this kind of straight guy doesn't have that many scenes yeah, and yeah, it's really interesting. And um, fast becoming one of my favorite Italian directors is Paolo Versi, the master of the coming of age story. Returns with Ovasodo. It's a gentle but fast-paced film with plenty of eccentricities, telling the story of a jailbird son who finds his way through education and love in the eighties and nineties. And I also saw Travolti da un insolito destino nel azzurro mare de agosto. Beautiful. Also known as Swept Away. <laughs> the 1974 Italian film infamously remade by Guy Ritchie and Madonna. This original is a political allegory about as subtle as a brick. An insufferably obnoxious wealthy woman is shipwrecked with a dirty communist deckhand. What is interesting is how the ending manages to be memorably cruel. But the characters are almost reprehensibly bad like displaying the worst extremes of their supposed political representations. The film succeeds in being so provocative that it's near impossible to remain ambivalent, and you'll definitely end up discussing the meaning and the merits of it, which makes it all the more baffling as to why Madonna would want to remake this like gender po politic baiting that on the surface it kind of might look like a romantic comedy, but it's actually like a hotbed of class warfare hogtied to misogyny. And what's interesting is this is directed by Lena Wertmuller, who is notable for being the first woman to ever be nominated for Best Direction for uh, an Oscars. Mm. Um, I did not enjoy this film. <laughs> and uh, yeah, That line, what was it? A hotbed of class warfare <laughs> hogtied to... Misogyny. 
Misogyny. I love that. That's <laughs> our catchphrase from now on, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Spoiler alert. Uh, yeah. It almost made me want to watch the remake and just go, what are you doing? What did you see? What did you... Because yeah. I, I honestly, like, oh, that was... I must have expressed that about five times during watching the film. I, was going, I can't believe they... Yeah. I can't believe you would try and remake this. Sure. This is just a mess of a film. Right, it's, right. It's nasty. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> how was my pronunciation? Oh, someone else will have to answer that one. <laughs> it sounded swell to me. That's awesome. I yeah. probably said something completely wrong. Yeah. Eh? You know, if this was a movie, it would be subtitled and it would be all completely wrong. I like the fact that it took you like a minute and a half to read that title. And then you said, also known as Swept Away. <laughs> the world is full of complainers. The fact is... Nothing comes with a guarantee. Now, I don't care if you're the Pope of Rome, President of the United States, or Man of the Year. Something can all go wrong. Go ahead, you know, complain, tell your problems to your neighbor, ask for help, and watch him fly. So, Duncan, what's the news? Well, Russ and Roger Go Beyond has lost its director, the formidably prolific Michael Winterbottom. But uh, for me, excitingly, he brought Alan Partridge scribes Neil and Rob Gibbons on board to do a rewrite of the script before he left. So John Carney, director of The Excellent Once, is now in discussions to helm the story of the big-breast-obsessed Russ Meyer and the most famous film critic since Pauline Keel, Roger Ebert's collaboration, the X-rated horror musical Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Fascinating story. Yeah, this could well be a loving biopic in the vein of Burton's Ed Wood. Russ Meyer will be played by Anchorman himself, Will Ferrell. And Josh Gad, so unforgettably delivering Pixel's least crap performance, will star as Roger Ebert. It always struck me as a crazy story. Look, there's been The Expendables. Three of them, in fact. One of them even had Kelsey Grammer in it. Uh, There's been a female Expendables called Mercenaries. Uh, And, of course, there's my idea for an all-midget Expendables film called The Extendables, which would star Vern Troyer, Kenny Baker, and of course Warwick Davis. And of course, now there's a horror Expendables. From a script by the late Leatherface actor Gunnar Hansen, Death House will star, okay, deep breath everyone, Robert England of Freddy Krueger fame, former Jason Voorhees Kane Hodder, uh, Hellraiser's Doug Bradley, Dee Wallace from Cujo and the Howling, Barbara Crampton from The Reanimator, and for some reason, Danny Trejo. (laughs) Ah! Hold on. And Hills of Ice star Michael Berryman. Texas Chainsaw uh, Massacre 2 and House of a Thousand Corpse veteran Bill Mosley. And Dawn of the Dead's legendary Ken Forey. There's also a former Michael Myers and a veteran of Ice Spit on Your gra- Grave in there, just for, you know, good measure. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine the film will find room for all these horror icons. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of people, right? Yeah. Uh, but hey, I'll be there to see how it fares. Mostly for Dee Wallace, Barbara Crampton and Mosley who seem like kind of legitimately invested in interesting horror performers. Mm. That's going to be a very niche film, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And that's a lot of actors. I mean, that, yeah. is, that is like the third Expendables where you have all those posters, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it, 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 like a lot of those people, you have to explain who they are out of their costume, you know? Hey, it's the guy who played Jason. Totally. You know I mean, like, yeah, totally. Uh, Ken Forey, uh, Robert England. And then everyone else is kind mm. of a little bit. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, and and Dee Wallace, I would think, as well. There's maybe three actors you'll recognise, mm. and the rest of them are so he- heavily made up in, in, in their famous roles that you just won't recognise them. Yeah. And you should recognise Michael Berryman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it'll be a bit of a yeah. giveaway. Yeah. Adam Sandler. Wait, 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 before we turn off the podcast and discuss saying, these guys are talking about Sandler again? Yes, but in fairness, it's because he is attempting to cast his by-decades cinematic redemption by indie credibility spell. Uh, this time with Noah Baumbach's latest called Yen Din Ka Kas Kisa. That title really rolls off the tongue, Yeah, it's it? beautiful. Uh, predictably for Baumbach, it's set in New York, mm-hmm. uh, which must fit in with Sandler's holiday plans of this year. Uh, he will star alongside Ben Stiller, Dustin Hoffman, because we all enjoyed their previous collaborations in the Fokker films, and uh, Emma Thompson, who describes her character as a dreadful, passive-aggressive alcoholic. Yeah. And actually, that's a matchup of director and star. That That is something I do like. Yeah. Emma Thompson and Bumbuck. I yeah. think it would be quite good. Yeah. yeah. So, so one of those rare, but no, not not completely unimaginable good Sandler films. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, quite famously recently, he, uh, he tried to do one apparently with Tom McCarthy who won for Spotlight. Well, he did. He did the cobbler. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, yeah he it did didn't it. go he, down too well. No, totally. I mean, it was a, one of the worst films of the year in most critics' yeah. choices, and now best film of the year. And how have I not heard of this news? There's also coincidentally, how the hell is this thing in news in the first place? News, <laughs> uh, the Twenty One Jump Street slash Men in Black crossover film has found a director. Yep, it's James Bobbin, the director of the last Muppets film. Uh, whatever, who cares? Back to the question of how the hell is this a thing? <laughs> Uh, who thought that this was a great idea? Why? The original cast from 21 Jump Street are back. Unsurprisingly, Smith and Jones from uh, Men in Black are not returning. But I'm still staggered that this is going ahead. Still, back in 2014, uh, Jonah Hill called the idea clean and rad and powerful. Uh, so maybe it's just me who finds this whole thing a bit odd. Yeah, uh, unless Doug is basically going to go, hey, you know, they've done high school, they've done university, now they're going to do... Aliens. Aliens. Sure. Like, if you just transplanted these two guys into Men in Black. Yeah, I think that's possibly what's going to have to happen. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, look, this whole thing first came out in 2014, thanks to the marvellous gift that never stops giving, uh, the twenty four uh, the Sony email leaks. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. And Phil Lord and Chris Miller will be far too busy, of course, doing the Han Solo origin movie. Oh, right. To work on this. Mm. Look, perhaps David Mamet's greatest unfilmed play, Speed the Plough, is finally greenlit, but the great playwright won't be behind the camera. Instead, it's Michael Polish, who, or Polish, <laughs> who, despite a steady 15 years of filmmaking, is probably still best remembered for his debut, 1999's Twin Falls, Idaho. No word on casting yet, but this is classic Mamet, like Glengarry Glen Ross mashed with Oleana. Uh, power playing testosterone thrown in with gender politics. It does seem a shame that many of Mammoth's other film adaptations, other than Glengarry Glen Ross, but even this kind of suffers from it, they've kind of sunk without a trace because they're shot in a way that unfortunately stays mired in their stage origins. Right. So, yeah, I, I kind of find that with a couple of his, the interpretations they've done, yeah. they, they they seem almost uh, too faithful and too yeah. unwilling to break out. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so that should be interesting of... I've always been curious that play's been on, you know, on Broadway and in the West right. End of London pretty much since its release. And uh, so they're finally going to actually make the film. And finally, a while ago I talked about Joseph Gordon-Levitt's quest to turn the fantastic Neil Gaiman graphic novel The Sandman into a film. Mm. Uh, a couple of days ago, a scriptwriter was attached. Eric Heiserer, the man behind Final Destination 5 and the reboot slash remakes of The Thing and A Nightmare on Elm Street. I read that and thought, it's not even news enough to talk about in our news segment. And then, a mere 23 hours later, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, the driving force behind the whole project, walked off it. Mm. So now that Levitt has left, what hope for the film? I think not much. Like the mega hit that is Deadpool, I suspect this film needs a champion. And the champion just walked because, I assume, he didn't get the writer he wanted. Mm. Yeah, I heard about this as well, and it was a shame because he, um, yeah, he seems like a pretty top bloke. And uh, he seemed quite magnanimous about it, you know. Oh, but, totally. But yeah. he also was clearly unhappy with it. Yeah, clearly unhappy with the direction yeah. it was taking. But The Sandman, uh, what a wonderful graphic novel. And, um, you know, if it's going to be done well, I'm all for it. But um, it sounds like it's not going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's these files, man. I'm not comfortable with this. Talking about sig int and signals and shit and signals means code, you know. I was just lying there. Talking here about department heads and their names and shit and then there's these other files that are just like numbers array numbers and dates and numbers and numbers and dates and numbers and i think that's the shit man the raw intelligence and now it's time for no comps which this month is hail caesar directed by the coen brothers starring george clooney josh brolin scarlett johansson tilda swinton Ray Fiennes and Channing Tatum. Capital Pictures fixer Eddie Mannix has a tough day on his hands. Superstar Brad Whitlock has been kidnapped by communists while in the midst of filming the biblical blockbuster Hail Caesar. Swimming siren Deanna Moran is pregnant, unmarried and lining up for a scandal. And cowboy star Hobie Doyle is butchering the English language as he goes from sagebush to drawing room for a prestige Lawrence Lawrence production. Can Mannix fix all these problems and make the ultimate choice to stay in Hollywood or take a dream job with the Lockheed Corporation? 
the Collins just seem to have reached this point where they can literally work with anybody. So it's no surprise to see them work with kind of like everybody. In the uh, film. True. <laughs> it also rewards them and us with some singularly great moments. Uh, Ray finds confusingly and condescendingly directing. Christopher Lambert descending from a camera to promise he will no longer sleep with Scarlett Johansson, who breaks from her Venus-like mermaid character to speak in a tough, raspy New York accent. Perhaps most memorably, Channing Tatum channels Gene Kelly in a subtly subversive tap dance routine. Ah, yeah, yeah. Great to see Clancy Brown and, uh, you know, the Kurgan and the Highlander back together. Yeah, yeah. Even if we don't see them back together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was such a... Uh, I didn't know Christopher Lambert was in this. Yeah, no, neither did I. It was I. a lovely surprise. And I was like, oh my goodness, there he is. Mm. Only reason I knew Clancy Brown was because I'd seen the trailer and yep. he was behind Clooney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I agree with you. The recreations of, like, Hollywood's golden era is delightful. I adored the look of the dance number, but also the film within a film um, itself, Hail Caesar, is gorgeous. Uh, Deacons? Yep, Deacons. Deacons does a bang-up job of capturing the look and feel of the era. The whole the whole Channing Tatum dance number, I'm pretty certain I got to the end of that and realised I've been smiling the entire duration of that number. Yeah. It was just banging. It was fantastic. Yeah. Gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, such fun. I mean, there's a lot of fun stuff going on in this film, eh? Deacons' work's great, and they filmed this on, on film. Yeah. And, and he didn't really particularly want to. Yeah. And they kind of said, come on, man, we've got to do this in film. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, most of the characters are based on real Hollywood personalities to some degree or another. Clooney's uh, b- uh, Beard Whitlock has a touch of Robert Taylor and more than a sniff of Charlton Heston. Uh, Scarlett Johansson's swimming style is modelled on Ethel Merman, but her story is pulled straight from the life of Loretta Young. Uh, a very traumatic story, I might add, actually. Mm. Uh, Tatum is more than a little bit Gene Kelly-ish. Tilda Swinton is based on gossip reporter Hedda Hopper. And Eldon Ehrenreich... How'd that go? Yeah, they're pretty That's good at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, his performance as Toby Doyle is parts is parts Dick Foran, who I only know because he was in the, one of the Mummy sequels. Oh, okay. Um, but it was a Western star, and a little bit of Roy Rogers, and he's actually one of the standout performers for me in this film. Yeah, he's really nice. He's yeah, really he does a really great job. It kind of reminded me of uh, Ricky Nelson as well from uh, you know Rio Bravo. <laughs> you know when he's singing, the, he's playing uh, the guitar, and he's yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a tradition of crooning cowboy stars, eh? Yeah, yeah. But that um, scene and uh, it was released as a, as a teaser trailer. But that scene with him and Ray Fiennes just doing dialogue together is is masterful. I was laughing the whole way through that, and I <sighs> I could watch that like every day. Oh, yeah, it was so so good. strong. Yeah. Um, and I also love, it's not much of a spoiler, but when um, when they watch the finished take and they've changed his dialogue, <laughs> yeah. and that's such a great payoff on, on a, like a, a joke that sits for a long time. You know? Yeah, yeah. Bed Whitlock is the slow to catch up, good looking lead character role that the Coens have long relished casting Clooney. Telling me this character's shift from self obsession to political awakening and then just quick return to self obsession is like so swift and without much influence needed from either side of the political spectrum. A cucumber sandwich and a chat about Marxism turns him into a communist, and a slap and threat of unemployment turns him back to capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I look. I, I could watch Clooney be a doofus in a Cullen Brothers film. Yeah, uh, endlessly. I, I read this great. I saw this great interview with him, and he said, "Yeah, you know, the Cullens keep ringing me up and go, oh, we've written this great character for you. Like, we wrote it's just for you.'" And he goes, "Every single one of them be morons." He's like, I've done five films with him, and every time I'm playing an idiot. Yeah. You're right. He's great, and there's so many other great performances. It's easy to forget how good Brolin is, I think. Yeah. He's fantastic. Everyone around him gets these showy roles, you know? Yet Brolin carries the film as he rides the chaos and struggles with what turns out to be a moral and career choice, ultimately. Mm. Uh, he is so tightly coiled and yet believable that he makes us care about the madness happening around him, which is handy because the film is decidedly uneven in pace. Mm. Uh, there are loads of great moments, and it feels weird to say this because I love pretty much all of those moments. Yeah. But they, they kind of hurt the structure of the film, which is rambling and faintly shambolic. Mm. Yeah, and and you know, I'm not really intently bothered by that because what would you lose? Certainly not yeah. Channing Tatum's dance number. Certainly not um, Scarlett Johansson's uh, um, mermaid scene. You know, mm. with her in the fish house. Mm. You know, they're all great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Look, it it pokes fun at the frivolous nature of movie making while meditating on the existence of God. The existential crisis and place of man in the scheme of the universe has long been a preoccupation of the Coen brothers, and here it is discussed in the most entertaining way. Early on, as Brolin asks four different religious denomination leaders for their view on the representation of Christ in the screenplay he is producing, the conversation falls into a vortex of philosophical questions, not before one devout leader expresses his biggest doubt, which is he can't believe the hero could jump from one chariot 
chariot into another at breakneck pitch yeah, speed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that's his biggest concern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The only thing he's really worried about, eh? <laughs> yeah. uh, look, one of the odd things about this film for me is that, like I say, all these characters are kind of based on hot, hot real Hollywood people, but 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 Lucy, that's sort of amalgams of, of, of several characters, except for the man who's the heart and the brains of the film, uh, producer and fixer Eddie Mannix, who's based on real life producer and fixer Eddie Mannix. Right. A man who may have had brains but presumably lacked heart. Uh, he's implicated in several murders, including um, uh, Reeves, the Superman right, yep. actor's death, and no doubt behind some fairly nasty cover-ups. Like, he's a strange character to become essentially you know, the moral heart of a film. Yeah. And it, it's unusual to me that they, they didn't create a character but just made him Eddie Mannix, essentially. Yeah, that's curious. Um, which kind of leads me to one of my other issues with the film. and I'm, I'm just not sure what the Coens are saying. In some respects, so it's a film full of oddballs and idiots. With Brolin's Mannix, as I say, as kind of guiding centre, introduced slapping a starlet, and then and in the end, slapping a star. Uh, he's the man who makes the movies happen, who somehow, against the odds, fixes all the films that need fixing, and corrals all the mad egos of the studio. So is he a hero? I kind of think he is. His self-sacrifice, turning down this devilish offer of Lockheed and the hydrogen bomb, uh, working every hour and living in modest comfort. Is one vice the odd cigarette. Some sort of noble duty to cinema. That he should break and slap a movie star once in a while seems kind of understandable, actually. <laughs> you know? But on the other hand, the communists who kidnap Clooney are ridiculous. Mm. They're, they're, they're a joke as much as anyone else. Squabbling, aggrieved intellectuals who somehow convince the doltish Clooney, and I don't entirely think he understands what they're saying, <laughs> yeah. that they're onto something, while themselves being starstruck by song and dance man Channing Tatum. They're as buffoonish as everyone else in the film, and yet, like the portrayal of Mannix, this seems to fly in the face of actual film history. Yeah. Um, reducing the era of the blacklist to sort of money-grubbing communists while ignoring the sway that was cut through Hollywood, particularly against left-leaning writers, seemed an odd stance for this film to take for me. Um, and making Mannix the hero of the studio system, um, in, in real life, uh, Loretta Young, uh, 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 whose story is, is used by Scarlett Johansson, uh, it's this woman who adopts her own daughter, mm. uh, she was date-raped. Right, and she tried to adopt her own daughter, and did to cover it up and protect the studio and the reputations of the people involved. Right, um, and so t turning this into a kind of gag, and making the movie stars into children who needed some sort of paternal, sometimes rough handling, struck me as a little bit uncomfortable in a way. Mm. I mean, do the Coens really believe that movie life under the studio system was as cheery as Hail Caesar kind of shows it to be? I think, in the Coens' way, that they very often don't really have. A hero everyone is to be ridiculed and everyone is to be questioned and and no one is really necessarily to be the hero right. I, just, so I just don't get shaving the rough edges off a real person in Eddie Mannix yeah and portraying him as actually using that name and that character mm. but then shaving off all these rough edges of who he would have been mm. seemed seemed an odd choice to me yeah um, the dance number is cheery, you know, Scarlett Johansson diving into the thing is cheery, but when you actually peel them back, she's this, you know, Scarlet woman and Channing Tatum's this communist and, you know what I mean, Bed Whitlock's this, this, this drunken idiot. Yeah. And so one is fake and, and dealing with these real problems does take someone like him who could be, you know, who, sure. who could be working for, for, you know, creating the atom bomb, yeah. the hydrogen bomb. Oh, yeah. totally. I mean, um, that's mm. the... You know, that's a devil's contract on the other hand. Yeah. But just that those those situations are gags. I mean, mm. Clooney is a doofus. Scarlett Johansson's kind mm. of, yeah, she is a scarlet woman. And Tatum's communism is pretty hilarious, actually. Yeah. Uh, when in real life, those situations were a lot darker. Yeah. And, and I guess if, if they hadn't made it Eddie Mannix, if they'd made it someone else who's in kind of a version of Eddie Mannix, mm. I think that would have been slightly easier for me to take, knowing what right. I know of the, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, maybe they left it as breadcrumbs so that we would go out and investigate and go, well, actually, this is all pretty dark. I'm amazed nobody has. Yeah. 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 I haven't seen anyone talking about this. Yeah. I was, I found it striking at the moment that, you know, Clooney's pulled back, or the character of Clooney Beard, Whitlock, is pulled back from this communism by the cowboy who comes in and saves the day, you know, yeah. for the capitalist American society. You know, he drags him He back is such a good character. Yeah. And, yeah. and I just love him talking about shaving Danny Kay's back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
great story. Oh, that is great. You know, when I, when I talked about um, Clooney being based on Charlton Heston, I think that's what my people will say. Yeah. But I think he's also based a bit on Robert Taylor. And I was reading this quote by Robert Taylor. I think this is hilarious. Acting is the easiest job in the world, and I'm the luckiest guy. All I have to do is be at the studio on time and know my lines. The wardrobe department tells me what to wear. The assistant director tells me where to go. The director tells me what to do. What could be easier? If that's not Clooney's character, <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know what is. That's right. But I love that moment as well at the end when he's giving that speech and he's, you know, he's obviously, hey, you're going to go there and you're going to deliver the speech. And then you see that it's actually affecting people. Yeah, you know, totally. Like, yeah, yeah, affecting yeah. Affecting people who work behind the scenes. So the script people, the script girl and the, and the, and the, the gaffer and the lighting guy, they're all starting to get drawn in and then yeah. they pull the rug out because he forgets his line. Yeah, he forgets you the know, word faith. Faith, yeah. And that's, that's what I love about that is that, they give you that moment of like, hey, this is a yeah, this is how the dream factory works. A transcendent moment, yeah, and but it's not. Mm. <laughs> it's still you still don't get that, yeah. and that's the Coens down to a T. And and I f- I find that this will probably frustrate a lot of people um, because it does have such a big cast. You do have, you know, you've got Twenty One Jump Streets, Channing Tatum, and Jonah Hill in it. So people yeah. will go, hey, well, let's go check this out. It's got these two guys in it. It's got Avengers Scarlett Johansson in it. You know, yeah, it's got. All of these people, so it, it will cast a wider net, and then they will go in, and but it won't have, and then it'll have the people who want to go and see the, you know, the forties and fifties recreated, yeah, you know, going, oh well, this will be a great madcap romp, and it's not yeah. really a madcap romp. It's not a madcap romp like Burn After Reading, which is this kind of chaos theory of, of comedy, and it's not as contemplative as a serious man or the man who wasn't there, mm. which are set in a period and are very much quieter films. It's kind of this middle ground, and I think that will be frustrating to some people. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I actually found it a bit of a treat, you know, because it contains so much of what entranced me about the Coens, memorable set pieces, attention to detail, philosophical rambling, unique characters swapping snappy dialogue and idiosyncratic patter. I agree with you as well. It did seem that it was a little rambling because I'm a cinema fan and because I'm a Coen Brothers fan. I just was I just enjoyed the ride. Yeah, I might have been on like a ten minute rant, but um, I really enjoyed this as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't 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 get me confused. I really like this one. I had a great time at it. Mm. Say your line exactly as I'm about to, just as I'm about to do. Sure. Okay. Would the detour so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said. Yes. Would the detour so simple? 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 Watch my mouth. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Keep your head still. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? I'm trying to say that. Would the detour so simple? Would the detour so simple? Trippingly. Would the detour so simple? Trippingly. No, don't say trippingly. Say the line trippingly. And now it's time for our top five. So look, obviously the Coens are masters of the memorable lead character, from Lewin Davis to Barton Fink, and of course everyone's favourite, the dude. But one of the reasons we love a Coen Brothers film is because of the often madcap assortment of supporting characters who populate the screen, from one-scene comic appearances to deranged support acts. Uh, we're counting down five of our favourite secondary characters, in the Coen Brothers filmography. My first one is Bernie Baumbaum. John Turturro's performance in Miller's Crossing was enough to convince the Coens to write an entire film for him next. But in this delicious melting together of the classic gangster and detective genres, the Coens deliver the audience a character with all the varied spices of manipulation. The role of Bernie Baumbaum, nicknamed the Schmarter Kid, derogatorily named the Sheenie, is the person who triggers the events that cause a vortex of violence. Bernie is one of the few intellectual rivals for the lead, Tom, laconically played by Gabriel Byrne. The Schmarter is also happy to ride his luck, sacrifice his lovers, set up his friends, beg his enemies, and rip off everyone. In fact, he repays the person who spares his life by extorting them. The Turo's performance in being led into the woods at the hand of an assassin has become the stuff of cinema history. Again, the Coen brothers find a scene upon which to hang their hat on. It fills all the requirements of brilliant filmmaking, integral to character, plot, and theme. And it is loaded with nail-biting tension, uncertainty, and if the scene goes any way, it will change the lives of people involved irrevocably. Sotero is repeatedly begging Tom to look in his heart, as the virgin assassin's aim bears down on him is haunting. Bernie Baumbaum only has four scenes, and every one opposite Tom Regan. 
everyone negotiating survival and trading on threats, and everyone a test of Tom's morality and character until it forces a change in both. But Bernie's giggling in the opening of his final scene is what stays in my memory. The way the Coens reveal his presence is like a horror film reveal. And this is the role that really put Turturro on the map and the idea for one of my favourite films of all time in the Coen brothers' head. Ah, yeah. oh, I want to watch this right now. <laughs> you know, just just you uh, talk, talking about that. Yeah, it's makes me want to watch it right away. Oh, it's fantastic. It's um, the, the music's amazing in it. I think it's Carter Burwell. And of course, it's the last one that Barry Sonnenfeld uh, did the cinematography for, cinematography right. for them for until Deacons took over forever. Um, but yeah, I just love that. And he doesn't show up till quite late into it. Um, it's quite a complicated plot, as you know, from watching it. I think it was about the second time around I kind of got all the threads of it. Um, but he's just fantastic in that role. I really love him. Uh, look, I feel like I might be alone in having Inside Llewyn Davis be perhaps my favourite Coen Brothers film. I adored o- Oscar Isaac's performance as an emotionally battered folk singer pursuing a probably fruitless career break. It's a heart-wrenching story of the struggling artist. And there are loads of great supporting for- performances. Uh, Justin Timberlake is fine as a sweet-natured fellow folk singer, Jim, with a uh, kind of saccharine taste, I guess. And Goodman is, as usual, wonderful, both obnoxious and tragic, as a drug-addled jasmine who shares a ride with Davis. But this film was also my introduction to the man who would soon take over a galaxy far, far away, Adam Driver. Uh, Driver plays crooning cowboy El Cody, who shares a recording session with Davis on Timberlake's hopelessly hokey Please, Mr. Kennedy. <laughs> Uh, while Jim and Davis drum and share vocal duties, Cody drops in with booming bass lines like uh-oh and <laughs> outer space. Uh, he also turns out to be a pretty chill dude, actually. Perhaps more at peace with his failed career and no doubt making sweet royalty coin off his please, Mr. Kennedy's. Uh, unlike Lou and Davis himself, the chump. <laughs> He's a great character. He is, and it's the first time I'd seen him in anything. Right. Um... So, yeah, yeah, it was a wild introduction to the guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he is a great character. It's one of those great, really, really small performances, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that whole song clip is on YouTube, and I watched it like twice, I think, when I was writing this. <laughs> just, just enjoying the way he cocked his head and, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it's great. He's Yeah, he's one of those characters that can only really exist in the Coen Brothers world, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I, I'm sure a number of these characters we'll talk about yeah. fit that bill. Mike Aida is one of the few characters in cinema who I can quote every single line of dialogue. He also sticks out as superfluous to the plot of Fargo, but also helps the themes and further define the character of Officer Margie. Mike Aida is the Asian-American former classmate who organized a drink with Marge Gunderson. He's both, he is both predatory and pathetic. His desperation is visible, while the source of it remains unclear, perhaps to do with that death of his beautiful wife and the mutual school friend with, that he shared with Margie. Now, Margie eventually discovers that not only did she not marry him, but that he was obsessed with this woman to the point of having a restraining order placed on him. Mike exists beautifully in the Coen Brothers world with a solitary scene that on paper seems straightforwardly sad, but instead is played for a Todd Salon's level of awkward laughs. He represents all the central duplicitous villain Jerry Lundegaard's flaws in like a single breath. Lost wife, covering of financial instability, and rejection by those he considers superior. Above all, he's a liar, a self-pitying and ultimately selfish one, but he also works to broaden Margie's character. This is perhaps the only hint of a slip of the halo for a heroine. Here she is dressed nicely and attending to her hair. She has also failed to mention the meeting to her husband, but she is also savvy enough to realise something is not quite right with Mike, especially when he blurts out that she was always such a super lady. And the next day, on discovering Mike's lies, this leads her to return with suspicions to Jerry. The Coens are masterful at this because it does all these things subliminally while having Mike deliver some of the most ordinary dialogue in a hilarious fashion, as Mike would say, to better times. You see, now I've got to watch Fargo again. <laughs> I love that character. I mean, like, he just, he's wonderful. And that actor, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. Right. Um, but he's just brilliant. And that's... That's the Coens down to a T. They do that all the time. It always reminds me of uh, in The Big Lebowski and there's the character of um, the cop when yeah when uh, the dude finds his car yeah and he's going, well, have you got any leads? And he's like, yeah, we've got the 
you know, detectives working around the clock. We've got like the down at the crime lab, like just like <laughs> laughing like leads. And he gets like four lines, but I still remember like that. Yeah. Stealing scenes from Jeff Bridges is just yeah. brilliant. Yeah. And they always allow, it doesn't matter, you know, it must be really rewarding for an actor to go, I've got a role in a Coen Brothers film. I'm going to, this is going to make me. Because you know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah, other, totally. Other guys, you know, you think, oh, I've got this couple of scenes and, you know, whoever. Like a Spielberg film. Well, you know, you might just be whatever. In Coen Brothers film, you're going to be remembered. Yeah. <laughs> There's not too many straight people in Coen Brothers films. You know? Yeah, yeah, true, true. Yeah. I'm not actually sure who the star is and who the supporting characters are in 2008's Burn After Reading. Uh, like Hail Caesar, it's a star-studded ensemble comedy. But since he's the fifth name on the poster, I feel fairly confident in selecting Brad Pitt's Amyville goofball Chad Feltheimer as <laughs> one of my favourite Coen Brothers supporting tunes. With brainless bleached hair and a mean set of gyrating moves uh, to his iPod, Pitt plays the sort of dimwit Clooney might have played if he wasn't already playing another dimwit. <laughs> uh, and it's such a rare pleasure to see Pitt nailing comedy and such an egoless, self-mocking comedy as well. His pronunciation of the endlessly angry John Malkovich's character <laughs> name, Osborne Cox, <laughs> is priceless, as is his harebrained attempts at extortion. But ultimately, Pitt would make this list for one moment alone, his reaction to getting slugged in the face by John Malkovich. Uh, comedy punch reactions are something I find endlessly entertaining and amusing. And in Burn After Reading, Pitt reveals himself to be a master of the form, deploying a frantic blink, a pout, and a look of absolute childish shock that makes it one of my favourite reactions to getting fist, a fist in the face ever. Uh, also, his death scene is pretty awesome as well. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. His death scene's brilliant. Um, yeah. Because it's the meaning of Clooney and Pitt. Yeah. And so they don't share any dialogue or any no. scene together. No, and no, that's no. The, And it's just like, bang. And I always remember Tarantino talking about that with uh, Travolta and Bruce Willis in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And you saw these two icons come together, you know, the next time one of them's going to die. Well, this time, it's kind of all in one go, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's brilliant, uh, especially knowing these guys have done all that, uh, Oceans, all the Oceans yeah. 11 films together and stuff. Just pit smile. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also when he says, I thought you might be worried about the security of your shit. <laughs> yeah. <that's laughs> so good in that film. Oh, he's brilliant. Uh, I remember, he, he's another one who told the story of, he, he got the script and he's desperate to work with the Coens. And, yep. and they said it, sent it to him. And he read it and he loved it. And he goes, but your character was such a moron. And he rang up and he said, Joel Cohen said, like, I'm not sure whether I can play this character. He's so stupid. And then Joel Cohen just left a beat and was like, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and he was. And he was. He was brilliant. I have a confession to make. Barton Fink is one of the films that made me truly appreciate cinema. Sure, I'd seen complex films before. You know, ambiguous and even lyrical ones. But there was something about Barton Fink that dared me to unlock its mystery. Much the same way David Lynch's films did, and still do. The Coens' fourth film is like a Rubik's Cube of a movie. There is so much to talk about. One of my cinematic heroes, perennially unlucky Roger Deakins' first collaboration with the Coens, Carter Burwell's haunting score, and unknown Steve Buscemi as Chet, the bellboy. Goodman's barnstorming performance that he has only equaled in other Coen Brothers films. Michael Lerner's intimidating movie mogul. And Tony Sholob's wonderful fast-talking producer, John Mahoney's drunken William Faulkner-esque Southern writer, and Judy Davis as his long-suffering, ill-fated partner. All these characters swirling like mosquitoes around John Turturro's titular lead, a role so excellent in capturing the arrogance, the desperation, and the isolation of a Hollywood writer. The performances are universally great, which is why I somehow have to hand it as a tiebreaker to the fast-talking cops who finish each other's sentences. In between slinging racial slurs and questioning their suspect's sexuality, they also have Chandler-esque dialogue bouncing punchlines off each other with the rapidity of tennis rallies while de describing a murder victim, an ear, nose and throat specialist, all of which he's now missing. Physician, heal thyself. Good luck with no fucking head. <laughs> the cops also represent a firm outside world influence on the increasingly hallucinogenic proceedings and their time with the fascistic undertones of the film, both their names, attitudes and positions, mean that they are a real threat to Barton's freedom, if only he wasn't already trapped in every other sense. Uh, I love those guys. Yeah. <laughs> that ear, nose and throat specialist um, is a wonderful gag. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It was the second Coen Brothers film I ever saw. I saw Raising Arizona when I was younger, and I saw Barton Fink, and I just was like, I've, I've got to understand this film. And right. I just loved it, and I knew there was something going on there, and there's so many... It's like... It, it, it's 
what I like about it is it's, it's the best form of critic baiting I think I've almost ever seen because <laughs> it has so many things in there. When you go through that film, there's so many little themes and ambiguous, unresolved things. As it's my favourite form of critic baiting, rather than like a Tarantino critic baiting, rather than, you know, going or going for like sex or violence or something like that. I just love that you know, it's one of these it's one of these kind of films that people can read into whatever they want, and um, it's all there. You know, there's something yeah. there to support their theory. But yeah, I adore that film. But those those cops are just brilliant. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now we're on to our favourite part of the show, your favourite part of the show, the tree of woe. Uh, which is where we string up a cinematic offender onto the Tree of Woe, much in the same way that Conan the Barbarian was strung up on the Tree of Woe. Uh, he was asked to contemplate his crimes, and we ask these people or films or whatever to contemplate them as well. And so, Simon, what's been bugging you this month? Look, this month for me has been a month dominated by strange movie trailers. The Star Wars franchise announced that film on episode eight had begun because I guess people weren't aware that there would be more of these Star Wars films. It was a mystery to them. I don't know. By showing us, well, pretty much nothing. The Ghostbusters reboot put out a teaser for the teaser to come that showed pretty much nothing. And finally, Batman vs. Superman launched a pair of cringy trailers that also doubled as commercials for Turkish Airlines in which Lex Luthor and Bruce Wayne spoke directly to the camera while being fawned over in first class aboard a Turkish airline flight, which was somehow going to Metropolis, <laughs> you know? Um, now, both myself and my colleague here are involved in the trailer-making business. So maybe I'm a bit overly sensitive when it comes to the trailer game. But these were all ugly trailers. The Star Wars one was simply unnecessary. It told us something we already knew and showed us nothing we needed to see. I guess the point was to keep us excited for more of those Star Wars. But in that, it seemed to fail because we, we were already excited for more of these Star Wars <laughs> films. And this is so far out. Mm. And look, we'll be more excited in a proper trailer lands, frankly. The Ghostbusters tease showed us neither ghosts or busters. It's footage of armed police racing to some emergency. It could be from any film ever. It existed only to warn us that a proper trailer would follow. And lastly, the Batman vs. Superman spots just felt really hacky and, and, and uncomfortable. In each case, the solution is simple. Just show us a great trailer when the moment is right. The moment wasn't right for the Star Wars teaser. The execution was wrong for the Ghostbusters reveal, and everything was wrong for the Batman vs. Superman ads. I think they could all do with a decent stretch on the tree of row, frankly, to contemplate what they did wrong. And hey, while they're up there, we could play them the trailers for Suicide Squad, just to remind them how you do the thing right. Because mm. the Suicide Squad trailers, amazing. Yeah. I think that, um, especially with the Batman and Superman, and probably tied up, tied up with the Suicide Squad, it just feels like there's new footage or a trailer out every week. I just feel saturated with it. Like, and I know we've said that before about the superhero stuff, but I just feel like that. Here's a new glimpse, and here's a new thing, right. and here's it without. It's like okay, you know. And so Star I, Wars, you make you're releasing one every year. I, look, I legitimately <laughs> feel the Suicide Squad's done it right because the first one was a little while ago, and it actually was a real teasy. Mm. And this next one was just a beautiful, beautifully cut trailer. Great choice of music too, mm. using Bohemian Rhapsody's genius. Yeah, uh, it was it was beautifully put together. But this, the the Batman ones have been odd. There was an interesting teaser. Uh, a really bad second trailer, yeah, and then a full-on action third trailer that hoped to just slam us with so much imagery we'd forget the second one, yeah. And then these awkward commercials. I mean, seeing Ben Affleck talking to camera while he flies his Turkish Airlines flight to Gotham, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, I don't get that. <laughs> it's horrible, you know. Yeah, the Lex Luthor one felt a little bit better because it, it, he was at least embodying the character. Although, mm. you know, I still don't believe I can hop on a Turkish Airlines flight and fly to Metropolis, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to be inundated with people just booking flights. Yeah, but the ad said. Yeah, just you know, like when there's delays, just like sleeping in the airport, waiting yeah, for waiting it. for the flight to Metropolis. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking recently with all the discussion of race at the Oscars, gender equality and pay, and representation of gay and transgender. It is a whirlpool of debate, no matter which end you jump into the conversation, and I think it's all for the good. Sure, there are abhorrent views, and there's just some stubborn attitudes. There's overly sensitive and provocative positions, but this debate on our current climate starts with these specific smaller patchworks of like, you know, all-white Oscars or female Ghostbusters because they contribute to a larger quilt of concern. And so I look to the future with a certain amount of hope and pride, not so much with the past. And this is where the tree comes in handy because, alas, I have to retire some of my favourite memories 
the thrill of watching you know 60s James Bond for the first time is tainted with the knowledge that a film like Goldfinger is sexist, racist, and underhandedly homophobic. But even the 80s James Bond is a sexist dinosaur. The dodgy haircuts are laughable, the rampant imperial condescension less so. In fact, it almost becomes a little bit indefensible. And look, just as Porky's Animal House and Revenge of the Nerds famously all contain clear rape fantasies from its heroes, no less. Now, these films didn't inform my upbringing quite as much as others my age, but a film like Sixteen Candles did. And I recently rewatched this, <laughs> written and directed by a spokesman for the youth, John Hughes, and it has an almost identical message in there. Like, get a popular party girl drunk and she'll wake up and she'll be your girlfriend. <laughs> Maybe you might have had sex on the way, who knows? You know, like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is probably a little prejudiced too, you know, to Chinese, Indians, women, actually anyone not Harrison Ford. Um, and my fond memories of the jet stunts and Kenny Loggins' mullet blowing power of danger zone are crumbling into ridicule. And I'm not talking about the homosexual overtones. Instead, realising Top Gun is a warmongering requiem to an Aryan Reagan youth wet dream. Name me a late 70s, early 80s film, and I'll show you how it marginalises basically everyone except the race, gender, and sexual identity of its heroes. To watch these now as a youth would be like when I was a kid watching films from the 30s when I was a child and saying, I guess black people back then were just slaves, you know? And maybe Native Americans are basically white guys with a tan. So unfortunately, films of my youth, I must put away childish things. And unfortunately for you, I must put them away on the tree of woe where they will die an overdue death in the baking sun. But I will mourn you because I thought you were cool and cutting edge back then. And maybe you 90s kids will have better luck defending the sandlot and pump up the volume. They're just films, Duncan. (laughs) Spoiler alert. And so that's spoiler alert for this month. And uh, Simon, what was your favourite film of the month? Uh, you know, that's a real tough one for me. Um, so, so uh, look, I loved Hail Caesar. I loved almost everything about it. I also really liked The Gift. I thought it was really good work. And so was Bone Time Walk. It was a pretty good month. I mm-hmm. ignore I Frankenstein. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to say The Gift. Okay. I thought that was a superb piece of work. Uh, uh, Bateman was fantastic. Egerton, writing, directing, and appearing in that film. And uh, such an assured piece of work. Nice. I'll have to check it out. And what about you? Uh, well, obviously, I love Taylor Caesar, Coen Brothers, you know, yeah. can't go wrong, but I'm sure everyone was going to check it out. So uh, my recommendation would be Three Iron, yeah. um, made in 2004, directed by Ki-Duk Kum. It's really unusual and engaging, and unlike any other film I saw this month, um, really appreciated that it was pretty much, not dialogue-free, but um, the two main protagonists is virtually, I don't know if they say any dialogue at all in the whole film. Mm. So it's worth checking out. We'll come up with a different segment and we're thinking maybe we'll invite yeah. people all our wonderful listeners you've been patiently listening to us for so long um maybe there's a film that you want us to review yeah um so it can be a new film it can be a favorite film of yours yeah uh, maybe it's a film you hate <laughs> you yeah maybe it's something you want to make us suffer through we've done a couple of movie challenge ones where we've set each other yeah movies to watch and we've really enjoyed doing them so we thought we'll turn it over to you guys and all you wonderful listeners. So messages on Facebook, probably the best way to go. Yep. Go to the Spoiler Alert Facebook page. Yep. yep. And just post on the Facebook uh, Spoiler Alert page. And uh, just put in what your what film you'd like to see us do. So the music we're going out to this month, Simon, is from? Uh, Please, Mr. Kennedy from Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, Oscar Isaac, uh, Adam Driver, and Justin Timberlake. Excellent. Uh, so, so good. I'm so glad you uh, agreed to put this on. I love the song. <laughs> I just want to say, too, uh, thank you to Friend of the Show, is the official title, Darren Bevan, for giving me the tickets to Hail Caesar. I was able to take uh, my wife, Tony, along, nice. and she had a, she enjoyed this film immensely. She had a lovely time. So thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Oh, good good on you, Darren. And thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next month. Cheers. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, one second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy, up on. I don't want to go. Don't show me in the outer space. Roll, please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh-oh. I don't want to go. Don't show me.
Fancy pants, all these.